The sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Well, a third straight blowout in this clash of the Titans here. And it always seems, especially when Golden State beats Houston, that it was almost inevitable that Golden State was going to win, that they have more talent, that they're just going to kill the Rockets. And I thought the biggest problem, of course, was the fact that Houston just really couldn't score in this game. What was their problem? Well, I mean, some of it was missing shots you'd expect them to make. Both teams actually missed a bunch of layups and threes, but I thought the Warriors did a wonderful job of recovering and making sure that all that they were getting as good a contest as they could reasonably get and also making sure they were one shot possessions i thought draymond green's defensive rebounding in this game was the un, kind of the unsung hero he did end up with a, a good number there but i mean click capella is just such a bear to keep off the glass and it required a team effort you know he was tipping the ball to areas not always grabbing it himself and so the warriors during the competitive portion of the game were able to make the rockets not only a one-shot team, but a half-court possession one-shot team because per cleaning the glass, the Rockets only got in transition. They only, only 15%, 15.2% to be exact, of their possessions were a transition play. Yeah, and that is obviously extremely low. And we said after game two that whichever team wins the transition is at a massive advantage. And some of that is both an indication that the defense is better and therefore you can get out and transition more but also just whichever team does a better job of pushing the ball and the Warriors to me certainly do a much better job of that at home and in particular they were just getting into sets earlier in the second half I thought Houston actually did a pretty damn good job defending them most of the way in the first half granted the Warriors missed a fair number of open threes but they only gave up one three to Clay Thompson in the first half for example I think that that's like a pretty good bellwether for how good their defense is but again they just they couldn't score and I thought it was very interesting that the Warriors came out early and they had Steph Curry hedging and hedging pretty aggressively really almost getting his chest onto Harden at times and Trevor Ariza and PJ Tucker actually did an awesome job of attacking in those four on three situations that resulted from that I I had said hey you know maybe you should try to put more pressure on make those guys beat you as the role man but they did it helped in part by the fact that Harden is just an unbelievable pick and roll passer on those plays so that was definitely the wrong suggestion by me and then they went back to just straight up switching it Kerr Kawakami asked Kerr about that after the game and he basically just straight up lied and said no no, we didn't really change anything we just made some small tweaks we're doing the same strategy we're always doing and Kerr you know he'll do that (laughs) a lot of times like he is known as this great affable coach with a lot of stories but if you actually try to ask him about strategy he will like clam up pretty immediately so he, he definitely was not truthful there it was clear that the strategy was different right at the start they got burned and then right after that it looked like they went back to just doing more trying to avoid the switch but if they had to they had to and then really what made the difference in my mind in this game was the cp minutes without james harden where the warriors really just rolled yeah i believe in the first half they were the warriors were plus 13 in those minutes and we didn't really see it in the second half because the game got so out of whack by the end of it but Kerr and the coaching staff did something very interesting partially due to the Durant Curry stagger which we'll talk about in a little bit but also partially I think just because it made sense and that's they went to this lineup which I'm kind of calling tall ball where when Chris Paul was the only rocket lead guy on the floor it was Livingston, Iguodala, I think Iguodala was it. Yeah, Iguodala, Nick Young, Kevin Durant, 
and Looney. And what that lineup did was it meant that there was no real guy for Chris Paul to go after because he he likes to have that kind of a little bit of a bully element to it. And he could sure, sure go after Nick Young and he did a couple times, but there wasn't really that place for Chris Paul to attack. And so the offense for the Rockets just completely devolved into these contested tough shots. And then the Warriors were able to get runouts off of that more often than than one would expect with a line of that limited offensively. I predicted before the series that I thought Chris Paul might have kind of a rough series because the Warriors were going to switch everything. It was going to be a lot of iso ball. And I didn't think outside of Lunu, who I think did a great job in the first half, but largely Paul has had a decent rhythm against him in particular in this series. But other than that, and it's just it's just a lot to ask of a 33-year-old 6'1 point guard who's not a great finisher at the rim and you know can't create a ton of separation anymore and, and while he is a great mid-range shooter he's not really a natural iso one-on-one shot creator he likes taking that shot out of pick and roll where he can get a good look at the rim i've been shocked that paul was as good in isolation this season as he has been but really against an elite defensive team i don't know if they're going to really be able to be efficient in those minutes when harden is, is off the floor so uh, the Warriors defense was outstanding. I thought Houston missed a lot of makeable layups early, but really, you know, of their guys, Capella is really the only one who's like a great finisher at the rim. And then, you know, maybe Harden, but Harden is flying in, having to beat his man first. You know, if you're trying to finish a dump off or something, we saw a number of times where Tucker and Bob Mute, who just really struggled again offensively, would get the ball under the rim and just be swarm down there and not be able to go up so i still think that capella should they should play him a little bit more i know they feel like they need more spacing but i think that capella's gravity is actually the best deterrent against draymond green and is helping it through him so i still think that he is their best option really on both ends as well because he provides them with some modicum of room protection which they just you know with these lineups they're playing they don't have anyone else who can do that yeah, I mean, we, that was a big part of what led to, granted, the Warriors shifted up a couple of different elements of their scheme after this, but in the early part of the game, why P.J. Tucker and Trevor Reza had that layup line was because Draymond Green was largely unwilling to help off of Clay Capella, yeah, and yeah. with Capella not on the floor, Green can activate and do a lot of the help, help elements that he could do, and I thought from the vantage point, I think we had similar ones that they had in this game saw a lot of the the mastery of Draymond Green defensively in terms of the little machinations like pre-switching and rotational adjustments and making sure guys were in the right place. And for whatever reason, the Warriors are way, way better at, at those elements at home. And I thought Green was really the centerpiece of what made a lot of that work. All right, lots more to talk about here about this Warriors win and where the Rockets go from here, our predictions for the rest of the series. But first, this from Indochino. My wedding tux just came in, courtesy of Indochino, went in and got measured at their showroom in San Francisco. Fits perfectly. It's going to be fantastic. My groomsmen have their appointments. A few of them have gotten measured already. They're all going to be wearing Indochino stuff as well at the wedding. If you don't know who Indochino is by now, they are the largest custom apparel company. Custom because it's made to measure. And that's what really suits should be at this point. There's no reason anymore to be going to a department store trying to get a suit that's not made for you off the rack especially if like a lot of people you don't have that perfect off the rack kind of body i know that i certainly don't i'm 6'6 i weigh about 220 and i've got huge shoulders and a small chest so i'm not really the type of guy who can fit into a normal suit and not only are you going to get a suit that fits you perfectly in only three or four weeks. I think it was actually, oh, I'm sorry. Now they're saying actually three weeks or less. And it was probably from the time I did my order, took about two and a half weeks to get here, actually. So they're, uh, at least for me, have lived up to that. And the level of customization now is fantastic. Right? You're not limited to just what's on the rack. You, They have hundreds of fabrics. You can customize the size of the lapel, the jacket lining, a monogram, and much more. This week, my listeners can get any premium Indochino suit for just $379 at Indochino.com. What do you enter? That code, CAPSPACE, at checkout. That's 50% off the regular price for a premium made-to-measure suit. And shipping is free. That's Indochino.com. Easy to remember that promo code, CAPSPACE. We talk about it all the time here on the program. Get any premium suit for just $379 plus free shipping at Indochino.com. I'm trusting them to outfit for my wedding and hopefully you can trust them to get you a great suit 
Yeah, what you mentioned about Draymond is in this era, the way that he just sees things and shuts them down, and he's able to just move so quickly, right? There's a play in the second half where someone's about to be wide open on a back door. Draymond's on the strong side. He rotates away from the strong side to the weak side to pick up the guy who was open back door. I mean, those sorts of just pre-rotations. There's only two or three steps, you know, but it was two or three steps like he shot out of a cannon and that just saves a bucket. It doesn't show up anywhere, but those are the types of plays that he's made. And he has been back to, with a few exceptions, pretty much to that level in the playoffs. And that said, though, like Houston could play a lot better. I think, you know, James Harden in particular, uh, he was only five of 12 with seven assists and i thought early of course they played it into his hands by trapping him but he missed i thought a lot of pretty easy shots i don't know whether he just heard the footsteps of some of these warriors rim protectors but you know he was only two of four at the rim and then two of four from floater range and he didn't i mean did he draw a single foul on a drive he might have had like one foul that he drew on a drive I think he had one or two. It wasn't very yeah, much. He only though. drew. He only drew two fouls. One. One was on a, uh, a drive. Oh, the three pointer. Got, yeah, the three shot foul, which shouldn't have been a foul. I thought that was no, uh, high five. Yeah, high five contact and minimal contact. To that, there's a point of emphasis for the league where if after you've released the ball, you basically are high fived by the defensive player. That that's not supposed to be a foul, but uh, it was still totally predictable that Jordan Bell would commit that foul after Draymond Green was taken out. Uh, for the last possession, the last defensive possession of the half. Oh yeah, I mean that's just just kind of a fact of life. Something I wanted to talk a little bit about, and it's been such a proxy in this series for Houston's defense, and especially I remember that in Game One. So the Warriors attempted 32 three pointers in this game, and only four of those 32 came from Draymond Green or Andre Iguodala. Draymond had all four of them, and they're doing a decent job i thought they did a better you know better on clay than in game one not you know they did a wonderful job in game two so no criticism there but even when curry's shot wasn't falling some of those were forced but some of them were just clean looks he missed two wide open threes on the same possession which is unusual and so houston isn't forcing those guys to take shots they did shrink the floor a little bit like they did in game two but i don't think they pushed it to the same level yeah i agree with you i mean there weren't those plays where when Steph Curry was driving, I mean, he was eight of nine at the rim in this game, Danny, and they didn't force him to take a single floater. You know, there's just nobody rotating over onto Steph Curry. And when Steph Curry drives, and there's two other guys on the floor you got to deal with, there's Kevin Durant and there's, I mean, you have to deal with everyone, but there's Kevin Durant and there's Clay Thompson that you can't leave. You should be able to get more help for Steph Curry when he's just blowing past James Harden and you know, he had a couple of plays where he got past Capella and finished. Capella actually, you know, wasn't as able to be as good defensively early, though he forced a couple of Clay Thompson mislayups in the third quarter. But you're right. Just, they were not nearly as connected defensively. There was definitely some head hanging, to be sure. But also, it, it was really transition as well. And Houston, all those mislayups through three quarters, Houston was... 13 to 27 at the room and D'Antoni talked about this in his presser afterwards that when we miss layups now it's going to be a fast break on the other end especially against Golden State and especially in this arena miss layups uh whether it's blocked whether it just comes off the rim are going to lead to transition and they also were four of nine from floater range Golden State again doing a pretty good job of rotating over but it was uh I think Houston could play better offensively but even if they make a few more of those shots at the rim, they're still not going to be where they need to be because they only got up 24 three-point attempts through three, three quarters. They hit 29% of those, and more than half of those are off the dribble. And so they're not creating the type of open threes. And really, I thought the only way that they were able to do that in game one was really through either warrior mistakes or their own transition play. I mean, they're not really able to get open threes for their support players in half-court offense against Golden State. Yeah, I, I'm just trying to think. So there are a couple of, I don't know if you, do you want to get in, into adjustments now or do you want to wait? Uh, well, I mean, we could talk a little bit more about the game too. Uh, sure. Because we usually save those for the end, but if it comes up organically. Okay, okay. Because, well, so so something, we you mentioned it a little bit earlier, but we could talk about it a little bit. I thought that Looney did a wonderful job defensively in that first quarter. I mean, that block he had on Mbamute, I felt terrible for Mbamute, who had basically hadn't been able to buy a shot around the rim, finally gets a clean look, and Kavon Looney flies out of there like a bat out of hell and somehow gets that ball. And I, I thought just 
because of the speed of the play that Looney might have fouled him. But when I saw the replay, it was totally clean. And he was doing a better job on switches. That faded, eroded to a point. Also, Looney got in foul trouble. Chris Paul lit him up a little bit. I said that he was channeling the, the offense Chris Paul played on Derek Favors, which has been the best he's looked in the playoffs. But that first quarter was certainly a big positive for Looney. Yeah, uh, and he was able to get a couple of buckets around the rim as well. And we did see Jordan Bell brought in. David West was not played at all. You mentioned that they went back to Curry in those minutes. Curry explained that to Tim Kawakami. Uh, I thought that part of it, Curry actually got two rests. I think it played into the fact that Steph's conditioning isn't quite there either. I, I thought he actually looked tired again early in this one. Um, and, and that his three-pointer still doesn't quite, he doesn't quite look to have his legs under him. Even that huge one that he made where it was super deep and they went under on the DHO and Chris Paul just let him shoot and D'Antoni was pretty pissed off about it. Like he looked like he really had to like throw his body into it. You know, it just is not that usual compact Steph Curry form that we're so used to, but he was able to make enough down the end of this game to have a spectacular second half. Well, I should, I should give his numbers on the third quarter just because that was completely nuts. So 18 points in nine minutes and 40 seconds. 7 of 7 from the field, 2 of 2 from 3, 2 of 2 from the line, and he was getting there on drives, you know, he was, uh, and then also hit a couple of threes later, and the Warriors were plus 14 in those minutes, and that's what really took the game and, and put it at, away functionally because they were up 11, I believe, at halftime, so that pushed it out to about 25, and I'm not going to say Steph Curry is back because we have done this before. You know, going back to Portland in 2016, he had a couple of nice games in other parts of the playoffs, but... Everyone overreacted to the first two games, and now they're going to overreact to this game probably, too. Right. But this was the closest to me that Curry has been, just in that third quarter, because remember, he was 3 for 12, I believe, from the field in the first half, to instilling that possession-by-possession fear in an opponent, and that really is his biggest value beyond putting points on the board for the Warriors, is just that the heads that turn towards him cannot be turned at other people, and so that opens up back doors, it opens up open threes, and in this game, Curry was able to shoulder that load offensively, but in other games, that can spill over into guys like Clay Thompson or even Durant just to make Durant's life a little bit easier, and I thought that Durant had a, you know, he had a solid game o- overall. He was big towards the end of the second quarter when the, the offense started stalling a little bit, but he just started making some shots. And the the ecosystem bec- that you are afforded by having, you know, four all-stars is pretty ridiculous. And that's a big part of the reason why, you know, you still pick the Warriors to win this series. Even, even we would have, you know, if we had done predictions after game two, we still would have picked that because the fundamentals in this series are in their favor. That does not mean they are guaranteed to win it by any means. The Rockets can come out, play a whole hell of a lot better in game four and make this, make this a more interesting series. But when the Warriors are engaged defensively, they just really need one offensive burst to push them over the edge. And in this game, for the first time in the series, it came from Steph Curry. Yeah, I thought that Houston's defense was still like close to good enough in this game. We, we've talked about a few tweaks that they could have done, but I mean, the Warriors only had 20 assists in this game, 16 through three quarters. I mean, that's still not really the 20 assists on 48 made buckets in this game and 16 assists on 25. Oh, no, I'm sorry. That's uh, that's the Rockets. 16 assists on 34 made buckets through three quarters. So, I mean, that's basically your lowest per assist percentage in the in the league under 50%. So the Rockets are taking Golden State out of what they want to do. They're making them ISO on most possessions. Uh, Golden State has just not really been able to get the beautiful game going at all. They'll have, especially after timeouts, they'll have a few nice little plays and, and they get more of those than the Rockets. I mean, I, I was talking... Uh, pre-game a little bit uh with some people in the Rockets organization and just talking about how in these switch games just you know those four buckets a game if you can get those where like they blow the switch or you get inside position you can roll to the basket and get an easy bucket you know that that takes you from and if and then maybe you have to iso all the rest of the times but if you can just get those four buckets or those six buckets out of just system buckets against the switch that takes you from an inefficient night to an efficient night uh, in some cases, although the Rockets had a long way to go to be an efficient night in this one. Um, what else you got here? I want to go through my notes real quick, see if there's anything we missed. Well, I, th- I think we should just mention that play that, I mean, I don't think the game was kind of over then, but Sean Livingston going behind the back 
on Harden and then dunking was one of those unusual highlights. And I had, I, I, I mean, Livingston has struggled a little bit to find his place offensively in these playoffs just because the Warriors don't really have much of a need for it. But defensively, I think he's been important just to maintain the continuity of their defense. Yeah, I, I thought that Livingston played really well. I mean, he had an offensive rebound. I mean, it's a, every bucket in this series until it really got blown open in transition by the Warriors in the third quarter, every bucket in this series really matters. I mean, you really just got to scrap it and claw. Uh, And I mean, there are a few, I thought Kerr, he actually ran an old play that the Spurs used to run all the time for Manu Ginobili. People might remember Joe Harris getting beaten by Manu Ginobili for a game winner back in 2014-15, shortly after LeBron had returned, where he fakes a zipper cut, which is where you start under the hoop and cut up towards the three-point line straight down the middle of the floor. And then w- when the ball's in the post, then Curry went back door on Chris Paul and got an and one, which started off uh, the second half. And that uh, kind of got Curry going. So that Curry bringing that one out of the playbook uh, in San Antonio was pretty good. Uh, the turnovers were another huge factor in this as well. Houston, an incredibly low turnover team generally. Uh, the Warriors only had six turnovers in this one. They were below 10, I think, in game one. And you're just, you can't stop the Warriors well enough unless they're turning the ball over. And of course, the turnovers early in, in game two were a big problem for them. Uh, it's pretty funny how whenever Nick Young comes in the game, it seems like Gerald Green also comes in the game. <laughs> like those two guys just have to match up with each other and young wasn't as awful defensively overall in this game he did have one just abysmal help play where he committed an and one where he basically didn't affect the shot at all but still fouled and and got it in there but he had you know he was played some decent positional defense and joe green is just attacked more there were a couple times when durant went after him and just looks really comfortable going after Joe Green, even though Green is, you know, bigger than some of the other guys that Durant's been attacking on the Rockets. And that ties in with with one of the adjustments for me. I understand that Mbamute isn't quite right. And it's not necessarily saying that he should be getting the minutes, though it is an option, but just that Green should be getting fewer minutes. Maybe that some of those go to Capella. There are a couple different ways that they can go with it. But the Rockets are going to have to stand firm defensively in order to win in this series, especially if, let's say, Steph Curry is, even if it's closer to back than he was, in, than he was for most of the series, not, you know, 100% or anything crazy like that. And Gerald Green just makes it so easy for the Warriors to attack, even though they don't do that whole explicit approach, especially considering Harden has been hit or miss on that end. And so I think they need to look at more defensive options for those minutes when they can. Yeah, uh, although certainly, you know, you could understand D'Antoni's concern that they just couldn't score. You know, I, I mean, it looked like he brought in Joe Johnson a little bit earlier to see if maybe he could get some rhythm, but uh, Joe was not exactly looking svelte, should we say, when he, he got in there. And, and I think defensively, he's probably even worse than Gerald Green at this point. A um, couple interesting stats here is from uh, our friends at ESPN. In the first half, the Rockets uh, were two of eight shooting and had a turnover when Steph Curry was the primary defender, and that's basically all guarding Harden or Paul. I thought Steph Curry has done a really good job on Chris Paul. He's really, Chris Paul's been able to get nothing on Steph Curry. Uh, and by contrast, the Warriors were 7 of 11 with Harden as the primary defender, including 6 of 7 by Steph Curry and Kevin Durant. I think actually Curry has even more of an advantage on Harden than Durant seems to. Curry is getting to the rim every single time on Harden, or he hit that one ridiculous step back on him. Also, I still am loving watching these teams try to switch everything, try to beat the switches. There is one possession that I loved where the Warriors got the ball into the post. This is late in the second quarter. The Rockets denied like three separate plays. Finally, the Warriors were able to go backdoor, set a screen, and get Curry a a backdoor layup. But it was just like the Rockets took them out of like three things that they were trying to do. I mean, like P.J. Tucker has had a couple of possessions where he just like pushed the the Warriors so far on the floor that they just couldn't even run their ATOs. I mean, like, the Rockets are definitely a good defensive team, and they're playing hard defensively, but just the the transition is just too much for them to deal with. That's uh, something that we've been highlighting the whole way here. Um, What can they do to get Chris Paul going? I I really, I can't think of much, to be honest. Um, You know, I mean, there's only a limited number of things that you can do against switches, and Chris Paul is uh, not a guy who's known for his off-ball game. Yeah, that, that's a concern, and there 
are enough capable switchers and you know reactors on the Warriors to take away some of that. I thought just in line with that, there was a possession that Draymond had on Chris Paul that was pretty amazing where CP isolated. I thought he actually settled for the ISO a little bit too early. It was like 10 or 11 on the shot clock. And Draymond basically dared him to drive left-handed and CP eventually got back to his right hand, but Draymond was able to recover and made a really, really hard fadeaway mid-ranger for Chris Paul, and he didn't end up making it. And so I think the Warriors are getting better at understanding how to play against him and just kind of getting into his space enough where he doesn't get comfortable, but also not getting close enough where he can exaggerate contact for as many fouls. And I thought they did a much better job in kind of striking that balance in this game. And if you don't give Paul that space as a team with this many good defenders, you know, a team that has fewer good defenders than the Warriors will get smoked because they don't, they don't have the, they have soft points that, that Chris Paul can attack. So I don't know that there is much to get him going in this series. No, I mean, I, I think, you know, transition again, is not really going to be his game. He, he missed a couple of layups that could have made his night look a sure. little bit better, but only four assists for Paul. And I think he only had one uh, until like he had a brief flurry right at the end of the third after the game was already out of, out of reach. We should probably, since we've been begging for him, we should probably talk about how Jordan Bell did. I thought he looked to get tired very easily. Like in both of his sits, I, I, I was joking that maybe Kerr should just put him in for like one minute after every timeout and then just sub him out <laughs> immediately um so i mean he was good and bad which is kind of what you would have expected right he made some errors he gave up a three in a two for one situation to chris paul at, at this end of the third he had that foul on harden which wasn't a foul that was actually pretty good d before and he got a steal i think it was on ariza uh, either ariza or tucker it was it was well. tucker but that doesn't really yeah. matter <laughs> and and yeah i mean bell's enthusi his enthusiasm i think is i think that's part of what has gotten the warriors coaching staff a little concerned but he hasn't seemed too jumpy to me i mean the the foul on harden wasn't about that i mean it was just you know it was contact i thought he did a good job contesting even if it even if it was a foul it wasn't like jumping into a dude's body which is just so much more obvious of a call there have been a few of those in this series and we didn't really get much of a chance in the competitive portion of the game to see bell's more cohesive offensive game especially when compared to looney not compared to david west who's obviously much better there but that can be potentially useful later on in the series because he's just a much better passer and a, a much better lob finisher as well yeah, and, and I mean, part of why I was critical of them not playing earlier was because, you know, I think they wanted to kind of, if he could have gotten his feet wet, maybe you wouldn't see some of these mistakes. And uh, But also, like, if he's not going to be in shape enough to play more than 90 seconds at a time, uh, might not be a, a great sign. Bob Vulgaris was saying maybe they should play Ryan Anderson more. What do you think of that? I don't think he's playable defensively in this series, and he's so much easier to go after like on it and he's done and there have been moments when yeah. ryan Anderson. Has i'll been tell you what though defender. i mean this is kind of what i'm thinking though since we're in a switch game anyway like wouldn't you rather they just go after him than harden like he's he can't be much worse than harden's been in a switch defender although two well, so, you're, so, harden, you're, so you're saying yeah. play those two guys together because then you also have i mean the help defense is going to be problematic well okay it. but like but you know you're we're talking about gerald green instead sure. of instead of anderson right uh so and they don't really yeah the help defense has not been great anyway um sure. but you know I, and i like might like to see a little more capella now part of it too i think is just that anderson didn't play well when they tried to bring him back for that ankle sprain i don't know whether he's just like in shape or in rhythm or really able to play that much he does provide like a, a lot of spacing and, and he's a difficult matchup for draymond at times yeah, too i definitely you know, like to see him. them try it you know, like it, it, Gerald Green to me isn't really working, and so go after something else. Brian Anderson is certainly one of those options, yeah. but there are there are reasons I understand of why D'Antoni would be reluctant to go in that yeah. in that strain. No, and I mean I think Gerald Green could be a little bit better as a one-on-one -on -one switch guy than Anderson, but uh, yeah, it, it could be worth a try. But I, you know, Anderson just may not be where he was earlier in the season from a mobility standpoint. Uh, I'm really not sure who else uh, that they can go to right now. I mean, Luke not being playable offensively has just been a, a major problem, a major disappointment for them. Uh, he was negative 28 in 15 minutes, although a lot of that was uh, garbage time uh, when the Warriors outscored him by 20. I and mean, this is like the worst ro loss in Rockets history. I don't know if it's postseason history or overall, but 41 points. Um, and they tanked in 1983, 84 to get Akeem Olajuwon too. So they're certainly... Uh, 
you know had some opportunities to get some pretty bad losses in their history but um you know it was really more of just you know a 20 25 point loss than a 40 point loss i mean this was a lot of that was just you know the warriors with jordan bell at the three <laughs> beating him up late i think this I, was I would this, like, you know what i would sorry. like to see more of I, sure. I said this after game one i'd like to see a little more james hard in the post uh against curry as opposed to you know even just kind of backing down just in a situation where he's not just careening at the rim and you know where you can just force a little bit more help maybe try and get some looks for the shooters that way and it's also probably not as fatiguing as it is to try to just blow by someone and get all the way to the basket you know that that might be something that they could look at or even if it's not in the post just you know get him the ball in two-point range with a live dribble more of kind of a a straight-up iso type of situation like similar to where the Warriors get Kevin Durant the ball especially if you can first get Curry onto him and then go into that although that obviously provides some chances for for switching uh I mean another quote-unquote adjustment is just to hope that you get a little bit more foul happy of a refereeing crew you know I mean there is uh the Rockets really they had maybe one foul that they got on like the bs foul drawing plays chris paul got one as he uh late i think in the first half and other than that they didn't get much and there are a lot of plays where the rockets drove and got stripped or thought they got hit and wanted a call and just didn't get it and so if a few of those go their way you know that those can be big swings as well so maybe that they'll look a little bit better offensively if they can get those calls yeah those those would definitely help and I think a lot of times the Warriors turnovers are more on on them than their opponent. They can have those games where they're lax. So sure, Houston can yeah. play better, do do a nice job in passing lines. I thought the one Cur- turnover, yeah. Curry turnover. They, they had was... three steals in this game. I mean, that's, yeah. that's just pathetically low. But something that I really want to watch as we move forward in this series is there is a real transition from this point onward because now every single game, the remainder of the series, whether there is travel or there is not travel, is every other day. So that is a lot of cumulative fatigue. The minutes these guys are playing are very, they're very physically challenging at times, but they're also very mentally challenging just with all the, all the actions and everything that's going on and the pressure involved. So that probably helps the Warriors more just because they have a few other options in terms of, you know, like if a guy's not hot, they can go to somebody else. But, you know, the last time they laid an egg in this series was on an every other day iteration so i want to see how that affects game four but then maybe more how it affects game five yeah and we say it all the time if you're the road team and you want to feel comfortable where you're at in the series you better be up 3-1 after game four and while the warriors certainly are more capable than just about any team of winning on the other team's floor i mean winning a road game five or a road game seven it can be really tough and so i don't know that i would favor the rockets if they win the next game but especially the way Steph Curry has played on the road in these in these playoffs, you can't feel too great about that. So uh, the, I, I expect this one to be a dogfight. Uh, I thought this one might be a Warriors blowout coming home. And we'll see whether uh, the Rockets can bring it back. And I just, I desperately hope that we have a close game in the series so we can see what the strategy looks like at the end and who uh, can come through. All right, we'll do a quick read here and then we'll be back to talk about the offseason for the Brooklyn Nets, Dollar Shave Club delivers everything you need to look, feel, and smell your best. Whether it's shampoo, conditioner, body wash, toothpaste, hair gel, posterior wipes, which uh, I happen to think are essential. And of course, uh, their classic razors, which come in their daily essential starter set offer. For just five bucks, you can get that. Comes with their body cleanser, their one wipe Charlie's their world-famous shave butter, and their best razor, the Six Blade Executive. Keep the blades coming for a few more bucks a month and add in shampoo, toothpaste, anything else you need. And now you're not having to go to the grocery store for any of your grooming essentials. Check it all out at dollarshaveclub slash capspace. Easy to remember that URL. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash capspace. We're about to talk about the cap situation of the Brooklyn Nets. Once again, dollarshaveclub.com slash capspace. All right, what we got here uh, on the Brooklyn Nets? Can you take us through their cap situation? I can. So the Nets have a little bit of space. I'm going to be very intrigued by what they do with it because they have about $14 million if they let Isaiah Whitehead and their non-minimum free agents go. I'm including the holds for Quincy Acey and Joe Harris because 
they could bring those guys back and that hold is not too much beyond. So they could get it to 15 or a little bit beyond that without too much of a problem. And if they wanted to, the Nets could function as an over-the-cap team. But with their specific situation, I don't really see much of a benefit there. You know, there isn't really, you know, like for getting the getting the bigger mid-level exception or, you know, trade rules. There are certain reasons that teams do that tactically. I don't really see them in that stance. So they have this small amount of money to work with. But the other thing to keep in the back of your mind is that any money Brooklyn spends this year come from on multi-year contracts goes out of what they could have in 2019 when they could have around 30 million in space. And that includes 28 million in holds for D'Angelo Russell and Rondé Hollis Jefferson. So they could clear even more space if they really want to that summer. So you're getting below max territory if you spend a lot this year. Yeah, and they could also, if they wanted to get into the free agent market, stretch Timofey Mozgov the last year of his $16.7 million as well. I think the, the most interesting thing about them is just they maybe need to find a way to get worse next year. And maybe that just means playing a whole lot of it, D'Angelo Russell. I definitely would look into trading Jeremy Lin to a team that needs some backup point guard help. Maybe you could trade him to a team, maybe back to Charlotte, you know, and take on somebody who's not great salary from them, try to pick up a little bit of an asset there. Although Charlotte doesn't have many that they might be willing to offer. Uh, Lynn has already opted in. Of course, I will spare the player option voice since he's actually a good player who would be close to worth that contract if he hadn't been uh, so injury riddled but I mean this is like the plan that Dan Feldman articulated for them I think way back in like the 2016 mock-off season or maybe it was a trade deadline to just hey we finally have our draft pick this year and this team is nowhere close to getting back into any kind of even playoff contention right now it's difficult to imagine I mean because a lot of these guys who expire are their few good players for the summer of 2019 so to me it's all about you know Damari Carroll is another guy who I think could help a team he makes 15 million this year Jeremy Lin you know relatively appropriately paid so maybe what you do is those guys perhaps even Alan Crabb they could do another reprisal of the very trade that Portland did with them uh Crabb might opt into his 18.5 million dollar player option in the summer of 2019 but he's another guy who can at least play, you know, and so if they wanted to take on a crap load of bad money for those guys who can still play, I mean, between Lynn, Carroll, and Crab, those are guys who aren't worth their salaries, but they could take back much worse guys, try to pick up some assets, and then also make themselves really bad this year. I think that would be my plan for them uh, in the offseason. What do you think of that? I like it. There's actually a parallel to a point with what Chicago did. That was how Chicago got a first round pick out of the New Orleans Pelicans at the deadline was not yeah. only did they give Nikola Mirotic, who's a good player, but they took back bag money in Omar Asik. And it's a lot more palatable to do that. And also it opens up a much greater universe in terms of trade partners if you're willing to take on money. And there aren't many teams with space. There are a lot of teams with, with I was thinking about like, let's say Orlando. Orlando has... Nick Vucevic, who's on a one-year contract. They have Bismack Biombo, who's on a two, who has two years left after this year. So, you know, if you wanted to move one or both of those guys, not saying they're the answer to the Nets to solve all their problems, but if they're if Orlando's willing to give up some sort of asset, one of their young guys, probably not one of their lottery picks, but you know, one of their young guys or something else, and there are a bunch of other teams. That was just one that came off the top of my head. There are a series of other ones that could be viable. I, I mean, they already traded for Alan Crabb from Portland, but like. What about tra- trying to pick up, you know, a first round pick and, and maybe something better than that as well? And you could send Carroll and Crab back to Portland for Evan Turner and Myers Leonard. Like that would be because Portland, you know, that they a team that has all this bad money that's trying to contend. I think that would be a, a deal that would be reasonable for both sides i mean it'd be hilarious to send crab back and they probably won't because they obviously traded for him they love him uh maybe they've fallen out of love after what was a relatively mediocre year i would even think about trading ronde hollis jefferson as well because he's a guy who's going to help you win this year he's got some skills to play as a small ball for not a lockdown defender but a solid one and he's going to be a restricted free agent do you really want to pay a ton of money for his next contract uh especially his capo won't be that big but if they have these cap hold or cap space designs in the summer of 2019 uh or maybe even more likely the summer of 2020 
would be when they would try to get back into it uh so i would try to see what i could get for ronde as well i mean maybe he could be another guy that you could throw into some of these trades where you're taking back bad money and i mean they've got a lot of guys who i think could help contenders but you know i mean they just have so little top end talent on this team that and this is the first year that they can actually get you know that level of player you know d'angelo russell is really the only guy you could say jared allen as well who has like a lot of upside in this team they just have to get more guys like that and really the only way to do that i think is by picking pretty high in the draft of course the 2019 draft's not looking that great but you know you got to start somewhere so uh, that would be my approach i mean with about that about you know 10 15 million depending on, on where they're at if they actually wanted to try and get better this year you know they certainly could try to look to pick up a, a veteran wing that's really what their need is they could maybe use another big as well there'll be plenty of those guys on the market that's another thing they could do too is with their free agent signings just try to sign someone to a good contract and then trade that guy too you know i mean that's a, another way that they could use that space potentially it could be i i could also consider them an option like basically the two pads that i would use for their cap space one is to take on you know bad money and get assets the other would be there are going to be players that fall through the cracks of this market if there are any young players that do try to get them on a contract that looks good in two or three years so that when you're ready to compete most of those guys who are available for 10 to 15 million dollars are not going to be good enough to change brooklyn's fortunes especially if they're dumping some of these other guys which i fully support if you get somebody, you know, on, on I don't know exactly who is going to fall through the cracks, but somebody probably will, especially if you can get it front loaded or it, to make it a little bit more palatable in those later years, th- this might be the time to do it. And you would be cutting into the 2019 space and the 2020 space, but theoretically you could create a trade asset. And just my idea would be, can this player be of use to us in 2020, 2021? And if the answer is yes, then that would be a pretty good use of the space. Yeah, I mean, that's really what I'd be going for. And certainly, you know, this will be their fourth year now uh, in the wilderness, having surrendered the, the third, third, and now eighth pick in the draft uh, over those years. Um, it certainly won't feel good to take another step back, but I don't see really especially because there's some pretty good teams in the east you know maybe if cleveland drops out but you know i think they'd be hard pressed to make the playoffs next year and it certainly would just feel terrible to be well you gave up all these great draft picks and now all of a sudden you're just too good to even get a good draft pick when you finally do have your draft pick i mean that that would really be disappointing so i think you know they would be wise to try to become a little bit more of an asset team uh they have some guys who are useful so I think the the way to capitalize on that is to push those guys who are useful into the future with a willingness to take on more bad money and try to get some more draft picks and then of course help your draft pick this season as well. When I a season when I don't think as many teams will be tanking as there were this year as well. I want to mention another potential trade partner because this is one that we did in the mock deadline and I thought it was a good path of with Denver, you don't necessarily need to get draft picks. You can also just get young players who you think are underutilized, like Juancho Hernan Gomez yeah. could be a wonderful fit in with what Kenny Atkinson wants to do. I'd say you'd be buying pretty damn low on him at this point. So doesn't have to just be a draft pick that's in an indeterminate year. It could be a young player, especially like even an early second draft type of guy that could make sense for them. I have a place to go here if you, if you want to let me. Well, I, there's one thing I wanted to talk about too, which does slightly undermine what we've been saying, which is that the lottery odds are changing next year. Yeah. And so to just refresh what those are, to get the number one pick, the teams with the three worst records would have a 14% chance of the number one pick. Then it goes down basically by 2.5% or so per pick. But really, once you get down to, you know, the eighth, eighth or ninth, you know, it, it mostly helps if you're really talking about like having a a good chance to get in the top four which is now what they're drawing for you know once you get down to like ninth or tenth and remember they were right around that area this year although certainly some judicious tanking which they didn't engage in because you know they had no reason to could have maybe gotten them a little bit below there so i don't know i mean maybe you could say that you know there's not as quite as much reason to tank here because you'd still get an okay chance you know at six or seven that's what they're trying to change around or or even eight or nine but i think also the fact that having guys like carol and crab on the roster this year doesn't really do you much good um and lynn as well 
and that you might as well try to turn those guys into assets and they're probably not worth assets on their own but then if you also take on bad salary and most of the bad salary doesn't go past 2020 at this point you know i think that's still a better strategy but it's not quite as imperative as a tank as it used to be was the only point i was making there but uh yeah you wanted to transition to something else there i did the nets have one of the most interesting collections of extension candidates in the entire league because not only do they have the two rookie scale extension guys d'angelo russell and ronnie hollis jefferson who are both you know D- russell they they gave up a lot to get him. It, it was a different kind of give up because some of what they got was bad money in the form of Timothy Boscott, but also, you know, the the pick that eventually got moved up and became well, however you want to think about that one. And of course, Brooke Lopez was in the deal. D'Angelo Russell's cap hold, his filler hold is $21 million, which is an absolute ton. And if they want to be a player in free agency next year i would i would anticipate russell's going to get less than that i mean some people are still super high on him you and i are lower than most but also ronda hollis jefferson 7.4 million cap hold and then i've written about this before and done a danny story time for patreon patreon.com slash duncan that spencer dinwiddie is a fascinating circumstance he cannot technically be extended until december but i mean they could kind of have an understanding they just can't sign the can't sign the deal until then and with dinwiddie there is a benefit to waiting if they're going to be a 2019-20 cap team because a 2019 cap team because any contract they sign will replace the value that it has right now. He has a minimum cap hold, but there could be a circumstance. Maybe they take on some money this year where just having Dinwiddie locked in, maybe he is more willing to come to a reasonable contract than D'Angelo Russell, that it, it's just a good decision for them to make. And why I think theirs is so compelling is because I could see the Russell and Dinwiddie negotiations affecting each other, even though they're being done separately. Well, I would take it even maybe a step further than that, which is, although again, I think they had chances to do this at the trade deadline. This, I would be even more aggressive. And I think for their culture, you know, they, they can't, it seems like they're they're not quite able to go like the Sixers. All right, these guys are assets. We're just going to treat them that way uh, under Sam Hinkie. But to me, if I couldn't come up with that Robert Covington type of understanding with Dinwiddie this offseason, I would trade him in time for before, you know, six months arise or, or six months before the trade deadline because then another team would have a chance to extend him instead. And uh that's where a lot of his value might come from for another team and there certainly are a ton of teams that desperately could use what Dinwiddie brings and so maybe you could get a first round pick for him again you know I think he's only 24 but maybe not a guy who you know a guy who's going to help you win this year and then also you know when we're really talking about the horizon of either 2019 or 2020 you know he could still be around then he could still help but if he's not willing to agree to an extension that you feel comfortable with uh I think you got to trade him this uh this offseason because they'll be unrestricted obviously uh uh, next summer yeah that's an interesting idea i am i think it makes some sense and it is kind of being proactive but i i think it's i think it's a good play i was just thinking about the idea in my head of them potentially being a destination for miami if they're trying to dump some salary whether that's tyler johnson who brooklyn actually made the offer sheet to in the first place or hassan whiteside theoretically mozgov would be part of the filler in that deal but they could go they could they could go in a couple other directions as well but they can they can lead a lot of these conversations there as you said there's so many teams with bad money i would oh, i yeah. love to see what sean marks can come up with should he get the green light to do that and if they're willing to dip into the 1920 space there's a whole selection of teams that aren't willing to do that either like let's say phoenix like i don't think phoenix is going to take on money beyond this coming season because that's the year when they could actually do it so if brooklyn can exert that leverage find the best deal or two that they can it could be massive for setting the table for the next step if they actually want to get better this year I think this could maybe be a Julius Randle team, depending on how much money they have. He, he'll probably be looking for a little bit more, uh, but we'll see, especially when we see how long LeBron James takes to make his decision. I think like if they wanted to just try and get some guys some upside, like a Bebe Noguera might be someone they could look at. Nerlens Noel, of course, might be another one as well. A guy who's younger, who maybe they could you know sign to like a three-year, $30 million deal or something like that see if if he blows up um yeah but not not a lot i think uh, actually rodney hood would be someone that they could look at depending on what happens with the Cavs. a a guy to get a little more scoring try to rehabilitate him a a little bit get him back into a good organization uh see where he's at as well 
so those are the type of guys I might be thinking about some housekeeping stuff for them. Isaiah Whitehead is on a non-guarantee. His guarantee date is June 30th. I would be shocked uh, if he is brought around. I mean, even with all the point guard injuries that they've had last year, they really did not use him at all. And that's about it in terms of some of the, the other oh, stuff. A couple oh, Jaleel Okafor. Yeah. Well, so is, is, yeah, yeah, go ahead. So Jaleel Okafor is unrestricted, but they can't pay him more than the declined option, even though they did not decline his option. And so that means he can't yeah. make more than $6.3 million. Oh, no, if they wanted to pay him more than that. Stauskas is a restricted free agent. I assume they're going to not make him a qualifying offer because yeah. why? If they did, I would uh, take that the moment it arrived yeah. on my desk if I were Stauskas' agent. They also have picks. They don't have their own first, of course. They do, they have 29, 40, and 45, just some kind of lottery tickets to go after things. And I actually think the late first-round picks, even with the revised salary scale, it's nice to have a guy on a four-year contract. They could, they could maybe get some bargains there. And the most interesting free agents for them, this is a very rare team, where the most compelling free agents on their own ledger are guys that are on minimum cap holds, Quincy AC and Joe Harris, most notably. Joe Harris is early bird. I think that'll be enough to, to sign him if they want to and and he had a he's had two good years for them after you know having such a strange start to his career originally in Cleveland then getting cut by Orlando and actually I'm not sure if he was cut or just expired in Orlando either way just he didn't go back there and you know I could see them bringing both of those players back and by having minimum cap holds they could function this in a series of different ways and I would like to see the Nets be proactive if ownership is willing to pay not pay the tax but pay up to the tax of using that 20 million in wiggle room aggressively because if they can pull it off that's a lot of value in terms of 125 percent in trades using the room mid-level presumably and then signing harris ac whoever they can get on a reasonable contract yeah i don't know if ownership would be willing to pay but uh well not not to pay the luxury tax but just to get to use that 20 million yeah yeah i I don't know i mean that's 20 million dollars in profit you're not getting so i i would be I'm not sure about that. I, I think with Prokhorov, with the fact that the team is eventually going to transfer over, I don't think that he is, per the agreement that they have, I don't think that he's going to be like looking to spend a bunch of money here before that happens. Um, yeah, Harris is an interesting one. I mean, they didn't trade him at the trade deadline. Who knows what offers they got or solicited, but they talked about him as being a core player. I mean, he's not that good. You know, I think he he's, Bobby Marks has been talking about him getting offers in the five or six million a year range. I think if he got that, I probably would just let him go if I were the Nets, frankly. I don't think he does you that much good. If you can bring him back on a contract that you think would be tradable, then, then maybe you do that. Um, anything else on these guys, or should we depart here? We can depart. I will mention that not only will I have the report cards up for Game 3 of the Western Conference Finals, but some offseason preview is going up on The Athletic. I don't know which one it is going to be yet because... They haven't told me, but one of them will. And we will be back with the Twitter NBA show on Monday night for a significant game for Cavs Celtics. We will be doing it as long as it is competitive, and I'm looking forward to it. All right. Talk to you guys then. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.